The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 13, as we consider God's holy and inerrant word, follow with me as I read. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, Then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is God's Word. The account of the conversion of John Newton is an extraordinary one. The writer of the famous hymn we just heard sung, Amazing Grace, knew well the experience of being wretched in the ways of sin. When we sing, through many dangers, toils, and snares, John Newton had certainly lived that. In a terrible storm at sea at one point, he found himself, surprisingly, even to himself, no longer cursing God. He had been an expert at blaspheming God and making up new ways to blaspheme God, so much so that the ungodly captain of the ship tried to restrain him from his excesses in this regard. But in this terrible storm, he found himself now calling on God for mercy. And his life was miraculously spared on that voyage, and he came back to England, a new man, a changed man to some degree, with a newfound faith in Christ, vowing to live for God, but it wasn't long until he was on another voyage and back into his same old ways of sin. And it may have been that the world would never have heard the hymn, Amazing Grace, were it not for another mercy of God, this time in the form of severe illness in John Newton's life. 
and he was brought low with this fever, and he wondered as he was ill if there was any grace left for such a wayward son as he. And it was through that illness that the Lord restored Newton in faith, and never again did he stray so far from his God. Clearly, this account reminds us of the fact that this illness and God's discipline is sent from God, and in Newton's case was used by God under the Lord's hand to awaken him to his sinful ways. It's something that's pretty easy to see in a case that's so dramatic as that, but it is much more difficult for you and for me to remember the truth of God's loving discipline in our lives, which may be more mundane. The Christians addressed here in Hebrews 12 were also experiencing God's discipline. In verse 3, we find that the author points them to Christ who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. They were apparently experiencing renewed persecution as well. In fact, if we look back at chapter 10, he reminds them of their former days, and he says that they experienced various things uh, publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions. And then in verse 34, it says, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So these are Christians who had already experienced persecution probably a few years before this, even to the extent of having their material goods plundered, and yet he commends them for having an attitude of knowing they had a better possession, that which we have in Jesus Christ. But now, apparently, opposition and persecution was breaking out afresh, and they were finding themselves tempted to give up, to doubt, to grow weary, and they had essentially, verse 5, become forgetful, forgetting the word of exhortation that addresses them as sons. We must think right thoughts about what God is doing in our lives as well. We are no different from the Christians being addressed here. The Father's loving discipline is to be a truth of Scripture that we often bring to mind and that encourages us and helps us, but it won't have that effect if we forget. Every parent knows the child who's sitting in the back seat on the long trip and saying, are we almost there? And they seem to forget when you say, no, we still have three hours, and two minutes later, are we almost there? They're forgetting. We must not forget what God is doing in our lives. What does this text teach us about the loving discipline of our God for his people? The first point we find is that God always disciplines us out of his fatherly love. This is a truth we must hold fast to. Verses 6 through 8 describe this. There's this Old Testament quote, and in verse 6 we read, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And in verse 7 it says, God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He goes on to say, if you're not disciplined, you're not a true son. You're an illegitimate child. God's discipline of his people is never out of his judicial judgment. We are not under the wrath of God. Christians have passed out from under the wrath of God. And 
Romans 8 verse 1 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is always dealing with his people as his adopted children through Jesus Christ. And we must take that truth to heart. We must believe it. We must remember that love always wields the rod of correction for us if we are in Christ. For the Christian, the answer to the question, why is this happening to me? And that you might not have an answer in terms of the the logic or the reason of this life. There are many things that are deeply mysterious. But the answer always is, to some degree, because my God loves me in Jesus Christ, and I know that he's at work for my ultimate good and for his glory. The point of our passage is this. We may know that truth. We may believe that truth. We may have taught that truth. We may have studied that truth, but does that conviction rule our hearts in suffering? And we see here our tendency, as well as the Hebrew Christians, to spiritual forgetfulness. And so we need to come again to hold fast to the truth that our loving Heavenly Father wields the the hand of correction in our lives. Secondly, the goal of God's discipline is our conformity to Jesus Christ. God's goal of his discipline in his children's lives is their conformity to Christ. Verse 10 talks about this in this way, For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, our heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That means that we may be conformed more to the holiness of our God in this life. Verse 11, For The moment all discipline seemed painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He's not speaking about the imputed righteousness of Christ that we have through the gospel, through faith, and we stand in that fully justified in Christ. He's talking about practical growth in godliness, in Christ-likeness. If we do not value holiness of life, then we will not welcome God's discipline in our lives. If our hearts are set on different goals for our lives than the goals of our Heavenly Father for us, then we will not be able, as the book of James says, to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Holiness is really out of style in our culture and society. It doesn't being holy sound like a throwback to the Victorian era in some way? What does growing in holiness look like? Well, negatively, it certainly means God disciplines us uh, to impact us, to help us to turn away from our ways of sin, to, to expose those things that we have placed before God in our lives, but also to prevent us from falling into temptation of various kinds. But not only is there this negative aspect of of disciplining us for our sin and preventing us from falling into sin, there is also this positive aspect that God builds in us through his discipline the graces and virtues of Christ-likeness. God is producing something positive in our lives, the likeness of Christ, the love of Jesus Christ, the patience of Christ. We, We think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. These are all things that the Lord builds in us, sometimes through long and painful 
discipline in our lives and things that problems and circumstances that don't go away quickly to teach us by experience to trust in the Lord and in Him alone. Think of the story of Joseph in Genesis, whose brothers sold him as a slave. And there he was, down in Egypt as a slave and trying to survive down there. And then going from bad to worse, not because of anything he had done, but because of others and what they accused him of being in prison eventually. But by the end of this story, he can say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Clearly a man who had grown deeply in his walk with his God through the Lord's discipline. I would challenge you just to think about the everyday ordinary ways God disciplines us. Think about the things that upset your agenda for your life, the things that get in the way of what you want to do Monday or Tuesday. You see, not only are the major experiences of hardship God's discipline, but the small problems and interruptions of life, we can view those as God's discipline as well that he's using in our lives. And these are the things that tend to show us our sin and expose what we really love, what we're really living for if we don't get our way or our agenda or what we so desire. And they're used by God to conform us to Jesus our Lord. I challenge you, can you really say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 verse 10, that I may know him, Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection. We love the first part of that verse, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. But the verse goes on, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Those last two phrases are describing God's discipline, his fatherly hand in our lives. We share in the sufferings of Christ, and God's goal is our conformity to him. But thirdly, we see that the experience of God's discipline is one of painful training. Verse 11 talks about this when it says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Discipline is not something that we relish. How does God discipline his people? Well, one biblical answer to that is that God disciplines us and corrects us through his written word. He regularly does that. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, God's word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. There's that same idea, the training of God. All of us are to be under the regular influence of the ministry of the word of God, the preaching and teaching ministry of the word, as well as our personal reading and meditation on the word of God. And God uses his word to form us, to mold us, to correct us, to train us. But in addition to that, our text is saying our Father uses our circumstances. Our Father uses His providential wisdom and rule over all creation to, as it were, teach us to more deeply follow Him and love Him through everyday joys and sorrows as well as massive changes and sorrows and chronic conditions in our lives. God's hand is the practical outworking of God's will and purpose in our lives. And it's not always pleasant. It's painful. It's a training process. We see that 
Verse 7 talks about it calls for endurance. It's like the young person who goes off to army boot camp. You don't say, well, have a nice time. Hope it's a lot of fun. No, you say, buck up, endure. I hope you make it through it. This is something that's profitable for you, but it's going to instill discipline and hopefully build character and teach you important lessons. The Christian is in perpetual boot camp, as it were, in this life. And we're never promised a pain-free experience. But our text is saying this is something our Father is doing, training us. Think of all the different forms that God's disciplines take. We could take a lot of time to talk about that. Certainly there are There are physical and medical hardships. There's affliction that comes in that way. There's the whole realm of emotional and mental suffering and agony and problems. There's certainly the persecution and opposition, which is the focus in Hebrews 12. But then there are the great losses of life, the great sufferings of life. There are problems in our families and marriages and homes. There are all kinds of things that the Word of God is telling us Your God is sovereign over all these, and he's orchestrating them all for your conformity in Christ, your training in righteousness. These Hebrew Christians had suffered, I would say, more than anyone in this room. But it's interesting that he tells them that they have not yet resisted to the point of shedding their blood. In other words, that's a reference to dying as Christ died. Uh, They haven't yet died for their faith. Certainly, what they had experienced, they had experienced in the pathway of loving and serving God. And Scripture is full of examples that indicate that discipline is sometimes for our actual sin. For example, Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. The Christians in 1 Corinthians 11 were disciplined by God for their abuses of the Lord's Supper. And Paul writes that many were sick and some had fallen asleep. Some had actually died. So that's discipline for actual past sin. But you might also note that there's references in Scripture to discipline being preventative. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 12 with his thorn in the flesh. That thorn was given to Paul to prevent him being puffed up with pride for the revelations given to him. And then there's Job's example. We just recently studied the book of Job. And there, his friends were telling him that he, had, he was being disciplined for some really serious sin, but clearly the book does not tell us that. And the friends were wrong. We might say that Job's discipline by God was educational. The result of Job's sufferings were to bring him to a deeper knowledge of his God. And so at the end in chapter 42, he says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job experienced growth in his knowledge of God. And so we could talk about persecution and illness and thorns and all these kinds of things Certainly, what Peter says in chapter 4, verse 12, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that is coming to test you. There are all kinds of ways that God brings his often painful discipline into our lives, but we know it's for our good. But finally, we want to ask, how are we called to respond? Our Lord calls us to respond as true children to his discipline. 
John Owen, the great English theologian, writes that the primary evidence of our sonship and adoption through Jesus Christ is not a visible difference in our degree of suffering from people in the world. Everybody suffers to some degree or another. Yes, there are great mysteries about why some suffer more than others and so forth or different times of your life. But Owen is saying the primary evidence for our sonship is not that you experience suffering. He says the primary evidence that we are true children of God is our response to our suffering in our receiving it as our Father's loving discipline. He says that's what marks the child of God. And certainly we aren't perfect in our response, but here we find two right responses and two wrong responses shown forth. Let's look at the wrong ones. Verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly. One wrong response is regarding lightly the discipline of the Lord. To remain indifferent to the significance of God's discipline. Sinclair Ferguson writes about this and says that our Puritan forefathers were at one extreme. We're at the other extreme. The Puritans were overly sensitive and saw every misfortune, every problem as due to a specific sin. They tended to want to look at a problem or a misfortune and be able to point to, well, God's doing that for this reason. And we commend them for being sensitive to seeking to recognize that God is disciplining them. But what Dr. Ferguson says is that that was extreme. He says, now we're in a culture and age that we shrug off any suggestion that this might be the hand of God and that a true child of God will want to see what his father is teaching him by this pain of chastisement. We can't make a one-to-one correspondence to sin, but we shouldn't treat discipline lightly. We shouldn't just shrug it off as nothing. The other wrong response is, is to lose heart and to grow weary. The end of verse 5, nor be weary when reproved by him. To be overwhelmed with our situation, to be paralyzed, immobilized, yes, certainly there are times of great sorrow and great grief. We're not discounting valid human emotion, but essentially this wrong response is to fail to believe what Scripture says about our Father's loving hand in our lives. And we see only the pain with no sense of the recognition that our God is at work in us, even if we don't know what he's doing, that we can trust in him. Well, the right responses are these. Number one, patiently submit in faith to our heavenly Father in recognition of what our God is doing in our lives. Not that we know specifically, but we know He is making us more like Christ. He is at work to deepen our trust in him. To patiently submit in faith reminds me when I was four or five years old, we were at my grandparents' farm and the dads were spinning the grandkids in the airplane rides, as I think they were called, and holding us by our arms. And suddenly I had a really bad pain in my right elbow and it was a dislocated elbow, it turns out. But that whole drive from Anvil back to State College where we lived at the time Being in agony and finally getting to the doctor's office when I got home, I think it was an office out of his home, and my dad saying to me, now, John, just be real still and let the doctor hold your arm. And there was this sense of submitting to the doctor's care. I stuck up my arm. I just never forget. He just moved it real fast, and it was all better. The pain was gone, maybe a little residual pain, but 
That's what you have to do when the doctor is working on you. You have to submit to him. He knows what's best. And that's what the text of Scripture is telling us, this patient submission to our Father in faith, trusting in him. And the other right response is, consider Jesus Christ. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against him. To think about Jesus Christ and his sufferings and so realize that we too are called to walk the way of the cross, that Jesus is the great captain of our faith, and that our suffering shouldn't surprise us because we know that he's called us to follow his footsteps. For the Hebrews, their discouragement was due, I believe, in part to a failure to remember this, to interpret their situation wrongly and to doubt the Father's hand and the Father's care. They were tempted to conclude that this increase in persecution was evidence that God somehow had deserted them. And so we are called to submit to our God and keep our eyes fixed on our Savior, Jesus Christ. A calling, really, not to trust in ourselves, not to to rely ultimately on earthly things and earthly security, but to look in faith to our God alone for help and strength and blessing, and to believe that discipline is God's divinely ordained path for each one of us for a deeper walk with God and to want to know Jesus Christ better, even if it means the painful but wise and loving discipline of our God. Jonathan Edwards is a well-known theologian, served as pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts, during the Great Awakening and beyond in the mid-1700s. But after 23-plus years of faithful ministry at that church, he was voted out in this great controversy over the Lord's Supper that took place at that time. And one of his supporters, a member of the church council at that local church by the name of David Hall, recorded this interesting observation of Edwards during that time. He says, that faithful witness received the shock unshaken, the shock of being turned out of his church. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week, but he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good. Overbalancing all imaginable ills of life, even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismission. So that's the observation of what we would say would be an elder in the church. Of course, Edwards and his wife Sarah were not without sorrow and shock of suddenly being turned out of this congregation. They had served his whole ministry life with their 11 children, I might add, with no evident means of support. But in his farewell sermon to the congregation, Edwards doesn't hide from the people of the church that he was plunged in his words into an abyss of trouble and sorrow. Interesting, isn't it? The observation of the elder saying, this man just rose above it all. Edwards preaches and says that he's plunged into an abyss. But interestingly, the sermon was free from all blame or accusation of anyone in the church And I I read about that, and I ask, how do you endure that kind of shock to the system, that kind of pain and opposition and transition and emotional loss without falling into self-pity or without a vindictive or blaming spirit? 
And I'm not saying that Edwards wouldn't have struggled with some of those things, but no doubt he and Sarah were enabled to do so largely because of their deep certainty of both the love of their father and their God and the sovereignty of their God, this sense of the loving discipline of our Father in heaven. May we likewise receive our Father's discipline with with ever-growing trust in his faithful and fatherly care. And if you haven't entrusted your life to Jesus Christ, if you cannot say with assurance by the help of the Spirit, Abba, Father, that my God is my Father through Jesus Christ because I have trusted in him and given him my life, then your calling is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and take him as your Savior and Lord and submit your life to him that you might know his fatherly love and care. Let us pray. Father, we do commit to you our minds and our hearts that this word to us, this word of the truth of the way you deal with us in your wisdom, in your grace, in your love, that you would cement these truths in our hearts. We need to be built up in them. We need to be prepared for the day of evil, for dark days, for difficult times, for even chronic and long-term sorrows that we find so hard Our Lord and our God, please help us to hold fast these truths, and we thank you and rejoice that Jesus Christ, our Savior, holds us fast in his arms. We pray in his mighty name. Amen.